Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. I'm Katie Mingle. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast Podcast. I am here today with some very special guests. Um, okay, well, one very special guest and one kind of standard issue guest. Old standby, <laughs> faded. So we've got we've got Gwen Maxi, who's here almost every week with us on Resound, and then I'm here with Johanna Zorn, who is the executive director of the Third Coast Festival, and they have a couple of things to say to you. You might be wondering why we've come down from the corner <laughs> office, <laughs> but we have something very, very important that we have to ask you for those of you who are listening to this podcast. We do have to ask for people's support. It is that time of year. Uh, Third Coast runs on people who contribute to our nonprofit arts organization, the Third Coast International Audio Festival. We produce the Third Coast podcast and resound a new competition and a conference and all this kind of great stuff. But we really need you to make it happen. Everybody, $10, $25, whatever you can do. Yeah, uh, you know, this is the kind of situation where we give the podcast out for free and we ask that if you enjoy it and it's a part of your weekly life and you depend on it, that you could kick in whatever you can and help the organization so that we can make more podcasts and do all of the other things that we do every year. So it really doesn't matter if it's five bucks, 50 bucks, 500 bucks. Yes, we'll take it. Um, we're just going to try and pitch in to the bucket piece by piece until the end of the year when we can end the year in the black. Yeah. The goal to end of the year in the black is $20,000. It's totally doable if the people listening now from the U.S. and Canada and U.K. and Australia and Denmark and Indonesia and Russia and South Africa all pitch in a little bit, whatever they can afford. And what makes things especially good during this time is that John Barth, of the Public Radio Exchange, our generous friend and advisor, is going to match every gift up to $3,000. So if you give 10, he will give another 10, and it'll be a total of $20. So that'll get, get us there that much faster. So this is the perfect time to donate. And I think it's also worth saying that we are completely independent and we don't get any support from any public radio station. A lot of people think that if you're supporting public radio in general, you're supporting everything. And, and that's just not the case with us. This podcast is completely independent. Hooray for independence. <laughs> but it means that people need to get on board. So I'm going to give you the address. It's donatenow.networkforgood.com org slash third coast so that's donate now dot network for good dot org slash third coast you could also just go to our website thirdcoastfestival.org it completely works from your mobile phone so you can just do it in a in a 
in a second. It's real easy and people start doing that and we're gonna get to that number and we are going to be strong. So help make Third Coast strong. Yeah, we are so happy to bring this to you free of charge. And um, if you use it and love it, we know that you'll be able to and willing to just pitch in a little bit what you can before the end of the year. Sounds good. So we should get on with this show because this is a good one. This is a good one. Brand new show. Very, very good Brand one. new pieces about the secret places that kids have away from grown-ups, all adults, parents, where they can just do their own thing. Yeah, it's, this is a good one for sure. You're okay. going gonna to like it. I know you will. Looking forward and to I it. And I know you, and you're going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here's the show, and we'll be back in a little bit. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. If we follow the tracks all the way into Harlow, it'd be about 20 miles. Sound about right to you, Gordy? If I just hop on the railroad tracks, I, I become a train and I can go as far as I want. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio from secret hiding places we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. The sign read, turn back. Turn back. This is private this property. This is private property. You're not welcome here for any reason. Look, see that one? They made a fire in there, but they didn't even let me have a peep. Privacy is an essential part of growing up. Kids can't have secret lives and entire secret worlds without a secret place. A room of their own, if you will. It doesn't even have to be a room. It could be a fort made out of blankets and chairs, a treehouse made from alley scraps, a vacant lot, or a spot under a sprawling leafy bush in the park that no one else knows about. Today on ReSound, where kids go to get away from themselves, their troubles, the rules they're supposed to follow, and of course, their parents. Stay with us. We'll all tell our folks we're tenting out in your backfield. You tell your folks you're sleeping over at Teddy's. Then we say we're going over to the drag races the next day. We begin with a story about a very unusual playground. Kids adore it for its lack of rules, regulations, and limits. Adults are wary of it for those very same reasons. And therein lies the rub. Children and grown-ups inhabit different worlds with different guidelines. Ours are prescribed, theirs are wild. Welcome to The Land. I love it when new kids come to the playground because it is out of the ordinary. Wow, I love this place. This is Paige. She's nine years old. This is my first time being here. Is it? Yeah, my first time. She's at a playground in North Wales, about an hour's drive from Liverpool. It's called The Land. Oh look, a cave. We can probably go in there. It's very small, but I think it won't stop us from getting in. <laughs> Echo! But this is an adventure playground. Instead of slides and swings, Whoa. it has hammer and nails, old tires, a fire pit, and a piano, bloated and out of tune from sitting in the rain. Come on, 
You haven't done. This way. Steep, muddy hills are covered with bikes and buckets, broken toys and rope. It's a junkyard. It's fair to say that by any American standard, it's a death trap. But we've had 40 years of people with clipboards telling us that this is all unsafe. Like we didn't know that. Arthur Batram writes about playgrounds in the UK. He says the reason for having loose stuff everywhere... It's a very, very simple idea. Permission. If you fill up a space with junk that is so obviously junk, you're giving children permission to do whatever they like with the stuff. At the land, children have everything they need to do anything they want. It's all provided by adults called playworkers. But an adult who gives a child hammer, nails, and their blessing is not as pathological as you might think. A playworker is very reflective. This is Claire. She's in charge here. And we watch the children that we work with and see what interests them. For example, we've got one little girl, and she likes to sit and be on her own. As a playworker, you identify that, and then you provide. We had the sofa just opposite us, and she'd just lie there for the whole session. You know, you don't have to go up to and say, you're right, you're quiet and you're on your own. No, it's fine. If you want to be quiet here, that's fine. If you want to be noisy and loud, that's fine. We don't put our agenda onto that child. The child is the starting point. But there is a saying in the world of adventure playgrounds, better a broken bone than a broken spirit. And I think that, that that's true. Children have to learn how to manage their own risks. And, you know, it, it's hard. It's hard as a parent to allow your child to do that. But you've just got to. It is very bumpy here, and it's very slippy. But it gets muddier and slippier, and mostly dangerous. Safety is something which I take seriously. For us, safety involves removing any hazards. It doesn't involve removing risks. Claire is a playworker, and playworkers believe that a risk is something a child chooses to do, like climbing a tree, or watching a match burn down closer and closer to your fingertips. A hazard is something a child can't see that can cause them harm, like broken glass or rusty nails lying around. In an adventure playground, playworkers remove the hazards and let the kids take the risks. Something that's risky for one child may not be for another. Hey, let's go to the swing! Let's go to the swing! Um, like yesterday on the rope swing, she scraped her knee and there was nothing there, and she was squeezing it to try and get some blood out. She just wanted reassurance, she wanted comfort, and that it's okay. Your leg doesn't need sawing off, you're going to be fine. <laughs> now, we made it. That's a lucky thing, because we could have died. Right. Yeah. Walking from one side of the playground to the other could take a child about 30 seconds. That's if they didn't stop along the way, which, of course, they do. They come through the gate and up the main path and look around, surveying the land, assessing their options. Look, see that one? They made a fire in there, but they didn't even let me have a peep. Paige points to a little fort with smoke coming from the windows. Some boys she knows have a fire going inside. Why are you not even letting me in? Paige, no! What? Come on, Paige, you're not coming in! I'm not knocking. I don't care! She's shut out in a classic case of no girls allowed. They never let me see things. I don't know why. <laughs> it's important for adults to know that not everything they see is going to make them feel happy and comfortable, even though it's called a playground. This is Dave. He's a playworker here. And a large part of playwork involves delicate improvising. So when three boys start this fire, Dave climbs in behind them with two buckets of water. 
wedges himself into a corner and sits quietly. The boys crouch around a small flame. And they start putting bits on. The boys are all between 9 and 11. The space, not much bigger than if you were hiding under the dining room table. This is going to go on fire any second right now. And play, they play with the edges of their lives, you know, which is where things like swearing come into it. These kids have been coming to the playground for a long time. They've had a lot of fires, and Dave knows them well. So I knew at some point it was going to get bigger. got smoky, you know, their eyes would be watering from the smoke. Even though I'm not completely overwhelmed by the smoke, I sort of move away to make it look like I want to get a bit of air. So you were faking it? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> so Dave climbs out of the fort to sort of indicate to the boys that it's smoky, it's hot, it might be time to go. He nods to Paige, who's watching from a spot in the grass. But the boys don't take the hint. They stay inside the fort with a pile of cardboard and an idea. We, I think we put it all on. We may as well. This will make all the difference. <laughs> you just watch it burn. Just go like that. Look, like that. Ah! Oh, sh- the sh- <laughs> Yeah, we're fine. You okay? Uh-oh. Dave ducks back in and surveys the scene. There's smoke and a fire about the size of a volleyball. The boys have all backed away a bit. Until one kid puts a cardboard box over the fire, like a lid. Leave it! Leave it! Leave it! Look! If you've ever played with fire, you know what happens next. The heat gets trapped, and the box goes up. Two boys climb out. The two left. And one stays. Leighton was still in there in the corner, and the smoke was blowing towards him. Yeah. Rather than going, get out the smoke, get out the den. I just said, you know, little things like the smoke's all coming to you, Leighton. It's blowing your way. It's all coming your way, Leighton. <coughs> and then he left as well. And they all left. Children built the fire. They felt slightly a little bit out of control of the fire. They left the fire and then they put it out. Put out the fire now! Excuse me! You put out the fire! With very little adult intervention. I think it's important that playworkers are there because not all children are as good as that at managing their own risk. I was there and at no point did I think they were in any serious danger. The fire didn't lick the roof, it wasn't catching other stuff. And I have put fires out in there before. But at that point with those boys, I didn't feel the need, I knew. It's so important 
for play workers. Even when you feel uncomfortable with what's going on, that's not what should inform your next move. The development of the children in front of you is what should inform your next move. And for them to experience what it's like to have a fire in a confined space and want to move away from it is a powerful thing for a child. Leighton even said at one point, it's the smoke that kills you, it's not the fire. So that's quite a powerful thing for them to experience. And hey presto, they left it. Being here is a lot more fun. Is yeah, is this almost open every week? Uh, most of the time, yeah. My mum said if it's open every week or something, I can probably go every day if it's open. We're open for about another hour as well. Right? Now we can go back onto our journey. But we have a bit of trouble on the way. The wheels get stuck, they turn different for the ways. A little snow, rocks, mud and water and soon we'll be running out of fuel. But there was a little house in the middle of nowhere. So we're going to stay here for the night. It was a bright morning. We were going and going and going. We tried very hard to get back home. The people tried to help and they were pushing and shoving and we tried hard to make it. We made it. We, can, we made it. We made it. The Land was produced by Erin Davis for Transom.org. She's now working on a documentary film about adventure playgrounds all over the world. To see photos of this very cool playground or watch her trailer, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. I like to close my eyes and walk along it as if I'm on like a balance beam and I can't fall off. It's like an endless walk on the train tracks and you don't need to be anywhere. The sun will never go down because they'll just keep walking and walking. When kids grow into teenagers, rusty buckets and tractor tires don't have the same allure. When the hormone levels rise, so do the stakes. By high school, the need to get away and maintain some privacy is paramount. An element of danger? makes it even better. Nothing fits that bill quite like the tracks. There aren't a lot of places to hide in a small town like Armstrong. Everyone knows you and your mother. It's hard to get any privacy, but teenagers are smart. They always find a way. And in Armstrong, we used the tracks. There's so many little alleyway shortcuts through Armstrong that only kids know about, really. And then you just grow up using those tracks, and you just know all these different little shortcuts to everywhere. The tracks in Armstrong don't run flat beside a road. They twist and turn through the middle of town. In some places, the tracks are protected by big bushes and trees, 
So you can be right in the center of things and still feel hidden. It's like not that you feel lonely, but you feel like alone. You feel like you have a lot of freedom, like no one can tell you no here. No one's going to stop you. In some spots, the tracks are high up, with steep embankments of gravel and prickly shrubs on either side. So cars driving by and the people on sidewalks below don't even know you're there. And once you're on the tracks in these high up places, it's hard to get off them. That's the fun of it. I usually take off my shoes, so I'm holding my shoes in my hand, and then like the metal part of the train tracks is all warm on our feet. We'll like push each other off and lay down and joke around and stuff, and then we'll like joke around saying like, oh, I hear a train, quick, get off. And then we'll pretend to be really scared, and then the other one like starts screaming. And then we look over and there's usually a deer there. It's just a beautiful day out and we're laughing and having fun and running across the train tracks and goofing off. The tracks have always been a place to flirt with danger, a place of unknowing, even in the middle of the day. I feel like if I just hop on the railroad tracks, I, I become a train and I can go as far as I want. And as soon as you hit the city limits, it's quiet. Farmland, trees, birdsong. For me, the tracks were a constant reminder that the town was somewhere, but there was always somewhere else to go. Sunny days were the best because there's trees around you and the bugs and the birds are out. Everything is just so quiet. It is really free because everything's silent. It's like you and your girls are the only ones around. And you just can laugh and talk about anything. And I like to close my eyes and walk along it as if I'm on like a balance beam and I can't fall off. It's like an endless walk on the train tracks and you don't need to be anywhere. The sun will never go down because you'll just keep walking and walking. You're just in the middle of nowhere, but you know exactly where you are at the same time. The kids have always owned the tracks. This is where I had my first puff on a cigarette. This is where I took my first sip of alcohol. This is where I had my first kiss. And this is where I took my best friend to tell her all about it. Calvin White, my old high school counselor, knows the tracks too. But from a distance now. Because adults don't go there. Adults stay within the lines, usually. Adults behave like adults. And to walk onto the railroad tracks, you're walking outside the lines. You know, you're not, you know, why would an adult walk in the tracks in terms of an adult mind? And so it was a place of, of uh, parallelism, parallel to the regular, to the people, but in your own place. The tracks used to be dirty because, you know, when there were passenger trains, the toilets would open the tracks and uh, it had its own smell, creosote. So there was nothing there to attract adults. So logical place for kids to go. And, and being in the middle of the town, uh, a place you could go in town to be separate. I want you to meet Andrea Young, my best friend since grade eight. We have a favorite moment on the tracks. It was the summer after graduation. We knew it was going to be one of the last days we were going to get to spend together as friends. We didn't have a plan. There was absolutely no way we could have known what we were gonna find. But it was like purely based on girls getting unleashed 
off the hook so we could go roam around freely. But we just decided to go on a walk down the tracks. We set out for our journey on the tracks. Autumn was already in the air. It was crisp, but still warm. We would run for a bit, walk, stop and rest on the rails. We would laugh, sing silly songs. It took us all day. It was quite far and we were off in a very distant place. And we were quite on the, the boundaries of where we were allowed to be, for sure. I remember that, which was very exciting. We found a steep ravine that became a valley. It felt like it was a field and we might have gone through like a bit of grass, long grass. I feel like I, I remember lots of like wheat. And in the field, there were piles of rusted out cars. We climbed through the cars like cats. We didn't know what we were looking for, but we knew we were looking for something. And then we found them. Two silver radio dials. We ripped them out of the front panel of the car. It was getting dark fast, so we raced back up the ravine and stood together in the center of the tracks. And we said, promise to keep this forever and ever, and we will always be friends forever. So then we agreed, and I have mine to this day. I have it right here. I took it so seriously that to this day I have it. (laughs) We got to be let loose from the, the eyes of the adults, and we made a story. We basically played real life dolls, you know, like let's be girls walking down the tracks and let's say we take something from these old abandoned cars and let's say that this is meaningful. It's pretty fantastical, actually. But then one year ago, on October 31st, everything changed. Taylor Van Deest was found unconscious and badly beaten by the side of the tracks. She was 18 years old. She was dressed in a zombie costume. After all, it was Halloween. She had taken a popular shortcut to her friend's house. She never got there. She died in hospital later that night. Taylor Van Deest had just graduated from high school, the same high school I went to. She played in the high school band, same band I played in. I moved away from Armstrong 18 years ago, but it's still my home. And one year after Taylor's death, I can't stop thinking about her and how her murder changed my town and the railway tracks running through it. The tracks belong to Halloween. This is Cameron Shook. He grew up in Armstrong. He lives right off the tracks. Like that's when those tracks always come alive. And that's what always was amazed me about that, um, that attack was that's the one night of the year where the tracks have so much traffic and there's people coming down from that side of town to this side of the town. And it's, it's fortified because like, all the teenagers and kids can all have their beers up on the tracks. And if the cops come chasing after you, they either have to walk way up that hill or, you know, drive all the way over to the other side of the town to get to the back side of there. So if they come this way, you're down here and you're gone. Or if they come that way, you're down there and you're gone. And, you know, the fireworks, the Roman candles. So it was always, uh, it was kind of the king of the castle. Halloween night, the tracks were the yard. The shortcut Taylor took borders on houses, and it's right near the road. The attack was incredibly brazen. Armstrong was heartbroken and stunned. I've never actually seen anything like that before. 
it was quiet, but you didn't see anybody. Everyone was suspicious. Everyone's looking at everyone sideways. Like I was, I was a little bit off my rocker. I was, uh, we didn't have even locks on our doors because we were still doing rentals. And the first thing I did is got my friend, the door and window guy come over and we just put doors, locks, did the whole bit. Cause I'm not really used to locking my doors. It's not around here. Never, never happens. But yeah, the town was depressed. Everyone was depressed. No one was going out. Uh, businesses were closing down. No one really wanted to be seen or, I don't know, everyone was scared and uh, <clears throat> it just beat the hell out of this town. My own mother slept with a broom. Everyone kept their front porch lights on. People covered their windows with thick blankets. Parents wouldn't let their kids be alone, even in the daytime. No one walked the tracks anymore. Out of respect and out of fear. It took months for me and my friend to even walk outside in Armstrong. But, like, just the two of us. It took a long time. We didn't go outside without... We couldn't even, like... We didn't... We refused to sit out on the porch, which we would do. Which was just always just go sit out on the porch, just enjoy the fresh air, the stars and everything. We wouldn't even do that. We were that scared. And in ways only the folks of Armstrong would ever notice the town's architecture changed. The tracks were deserted. The kids were all being driven to school. If you had to travel by foot, you walked the long way around, along the road, with purpose. Some people carried knives. For me, knowing that, that uh, Taylor was killed on the tracks, it resonated more than if she'd been killed someplace else. And I know that I, I hoped... I hoped that it wasn't an Armstrong person that did the assault and the crime because it it would have meant, I think, that uh, a, a wrongness was happening, uh, uh, something had broken. Then in April, six months after Taylor was murdered, a man was arrested in the case. He was wanted for two other violent crimes. He was from another town. He wasn't one of us. And so I was really glad when I found out that it was somebody that wasn't from Armstrong because then it meant that it was an absolute accident. One of those things that couldn't be prevented, that couldn't be predicted, uh, that couldn't be defended against because it was so random. Whereas if it had been somebody from Armstrong that used the tracks to attack somebody, it would have been a violation of everything that we all are there and it would have been a sign that things really had changed. People in town unlocked their doors. Light poured back into living rooms. Dogs started being taken for walks by kids again. Shoulders dropped. People breathed. But the tracks remained pretty empty. A few kids tried to walk them, but it just wasn't the same. The first time that we went walking, we walked down the train tracks, and it's just, you don't feel safe, which is a really weird feeling on the train tracks because I always felt safe on them, and it was always a happy memory, but this time it wasn't. And we we were crying, but it wasn't like the normal kind of sad crying. It was just silent tears. She didn't say anything, I didn't say anything, but we just both knew what we were thinking just silently walking with tears 
down her face. I feel confused because there's two different memories. The contrast of the memories in my brain are kind of like really fighting each other, I guess. It's tough. Both feelings contradict each other a lot. <laughs> there's a move in Armstrong to clean up the tracks. A trail in Taylor's honor is being built. Lights are going to be hung, flowers planted. Dorian Cole, Taylor's old neighbor and family friend, is one of the people making this happen. I mean, I, I think everyone here has this, had this image of this dark railroad track with all the debris around it and all the scruffy grasses and it neglect. It's a neglected area. It's not pretty at all. And anybody who has a darkness in their soul can actually continue to go there and, and experience the horrific details of that. I mean, we, it doesn't take a lot to go there mentally. And probably a lot of the young people in town have, have done that and still do it. It's terrifying. So I think to recreate it, you know, to take out the mess, like I, I want to get in there physically and help weed and take all that crap out of there and to, to remove the signs of darkness. Early this summer, the darkness was still there. I walked along the tracks alone for miles, and I saw no one. I thought, maybe the tracks as I had known them were gone for good. A girl had been murdered here. This place had been ruined. And then in September, on the weekend of the annual fall fair, I'm walking along the tracks late at night by myself. And for the first time in almost a year, I see them. Smoking, drinking, laughing in a few small groups along the railway. Doing exactly what you are supposed to do on a railroad track at night in a small town at the end of a hot summer. I feel like I'm intruding on something sacred. They don't talk to me, but their eyes say, You can't get rid of us. And you don't belong here. They were reclaiming their space. They were going back and doing what we have done in Armstrong for generations. Owning the tracks. We're walking down the tracks and we're just coming out of where the trees are so it's all clear and you can see the sun. And we're just kicking pebbles and skipping, I think it was, I think we're skipping one piece of wood, like one plank. And then we got really good at that so we start going and we're doing two. And I just look at Hannah, and instantly she knows I want to race her. It's just what we do. So we start running. We're not going very fast, and we're kicking the pebbles. And I can feel them hitting my shins as I start running faster and faster. And I'm jumping as far as I can to skip as many planks of wood as I can. And I'm trying not to touch the ground. And I can just feel myself getting so tired as I ran so far. And I just keep going and keep going. <laughs> They keep going, those tracks. Because it's 
big enough to not feel like you're nowhere, but small enough to feel like you're somewhere. It's really refreshing, in a way, just walking down. Even though you have those bittersweet memories, like you do feel better. Just kind of allowing yourself to feel like that. There's still that sort, like that freedom and innocence when you do walk on it, and it's still nice to walk on them. The Tracks was produced by Karen Levine and reported by Amelia Simming. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tinfetti for the CBC's program, The Sunday Edition. Isn't there a set of tracks like in every town? Every kid has their set of tracks, whether it's a set of tracks or a fort or an abandoned vacant lot or whatever. Um, I'm Gwen Maxi. Uh, we're interrupting the show a little bit. I'm here with Johanna Zorn, hello, executive director of Third Coast Festival. We're here because uh, as we bring you this podcast, we know you enjoy it and listen to it week after week, and we love to bring it to you. It's the end of the year. And that means we have to raise some money to support it. It sure does. And, you know, this piece is so emblematic of the work that we love, work that just transports you, that makes you feel like you've gone someplace that you haven't gone before. And that's one of the things that we look for when we curate work. And that's the thing that we love, love, love to do the most. And to support that, we do ask for your help, whether it's $10, $25, $50. Every little bit really gets us closer to meeting our goal. Our goal is $20,000 to end the year in the black to help us get there. John Barth from prx.org, a good friend and advisor, a really generous person, is going to match your donation dollar for dollar up to $3,000. So if you go to thirdcoastfestival.org and make a gift of $10, it'll turn into $20. And it's much more important to us that everybody contribute what they yep. can, yep. not that one person contribute all, although that would be great. Well, I would. I love the idea that people are listening from all over the world right now, and if we started getting gifts from Australia and Indonesia and South Africa and Canada and the U.K., that would so make my day. It would. That would be amazing. We're, we know you're out there. Please show us that you're out there at the end of the year. We don't really, we've never ever do this. So um, <laughs> just show us that you're there, you're listening, and you support what we do. We so, so, so appreciate it. Now we'll get back to the show. I have to give the address first. Okay. Thirdcoastfestival.org. Okay. 
Would have been mine if it hadn't been to those meddling kids. Lovers' lanes and abandoned beaches have long been frequented by restless teenagers. But nothing says, I dare you, like a no trespassing sign. It's like the X on a treasure map. That is where the gold is going to be, for sure. On the media producer, Alex Goldman had a hangout like that. Remote, forbidden, a secret shared only among best friends. The memory of this place was so strong, it stayed with him into his adulthood. And so recently he tried to revisit Hei-Yoon. Maybe the last time I went out there was 2005. I was early stages dating this lady. I went over to her house. She's like, I just had this crazy dream where you and I were like walking through a field and, and came upon a spaceship. And I was like, oh yeah, you want to go there? And she's like, what are you talking about? I was like, no, that's a place. We can, we can go, it's not far. And we finally saw this place. She was just like overtaken with how magical it was to, to see this thing that just doesn't seem real. Why are you guys taking us out to the middle of nowhere? We're going to hang you. Hey, 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 you don't know where we're going to go. It's a secret. I was really lucky to grow up in Ann Arbor. We had great record stores and an art house movie theater. And of course, Ann Arbor is the home of the University of Michigan. So there was a lot going on for a small town. But it was a small town. And I was a misfit. And like a lot of young misfits in small towns, I was bored and disaffected and angry a lot. That misfit is Alex Goldman. He's a producer at the radio show On The Media, and he now lives in New York City. I hated high school. I was a bad student. And most of my friends went to different schools. In fact, Although I've gone by Alex my entire life, that's actually my middle name. My first name's Michael, and for at least half of my high school career, my teachers and peers all called me Michael. It was like I walked around pretending to be a completely different person for most of my waking life. I felt like I didn't belong anywhere, and I desperately wanted to escape this oppressively small town that felt completely devoid of wonder. And then I found Hei-Yoon. Right. Uh, I hope someone brought a flashlight. No, no, no. We can't be using flashlights. So see us. Ooh. Just a boogeyman. Here, take my lighter. The only way you found out about Hei-Yoon was if someone took you there. It was like there was this secret club of kids who knew about it. I got initiated when I was 15. You'd drive out into the middle of nowhere, deep in the country, and park alongside this dirt road. All right, so step one... We've got to get over that fence. There was this fence that you had to climb over. It had the sign on it. Guys, I don't know about this. Now come on, man. The sign read, turn back. Turn back. This is private this property. This is private property. You're not welcome here for any reason. Please, now, turn back and leave in peace. Turn back and leave in peace. It almost felt like a dare. Trust me, this is going to change your life. Once you were over the fence, 
you pass alongside a white farmhouse. The guy that owns that house is crazy. I heard a rumor that he shot a kid full of rock salt for getting near his house. I heard he's got a pack of attack dogs. I heard he skinned a kid alive. A path behind the house led to this thin line of trees, but once you made it through the trees, you were in this huge field. And there was something else there in the field. Something man-made. Something really big. Okay, hey, here's what we gotta do. When we get up to that clearing, everybody run as fast as you can. How far? Until you see it. Okay, ready? Three, two, one, go! Welcome to Heyoon. Oh, it's beautiful. The structure was made mostly of wood, with a canopy of Teflon and nylon stretched over a metal frame. From the base, there were stairs leading up to a platform about 10 feet off the ground, suspended over a boulder about the size of a Volkswagen bug. At the top of the stairs, there were these two pieces of glass in the floor, and one night, a friend stood underneath with a lighter while I looked down from on top. There was an etching on one of those pieces of glass. It said, the Heyoon Pavilion. H-E-Y-O-O-N, Heyoon, the Heyoon Pavilion. There was other signage too. One sign that sort of welcomes you there. This pavilion is a work of art, designed and carefully put together for more than two years by many workmen and artisans. If you by some happenstance are now here in this place, please take pleasure in its serenity. But please do not disturb it nor deface its beauty in any way. Its beauty alone is your reward for meandering here. For your respect, the spirit of the designer artist will leave you in peace. But then right next to that, there was this other sign. It said, and I'm quoting, if you are here, you shouldn't be. This is a privately owned farm off limits to outsiders. You have crossed clearly marked keep out and no trespassing signs on fence lines and gates. Please. Now, respect the owner's privacy by leaving this place in peace. Thank you. Some of the no trespassing signs may have backfired a little bit because there was this, I I feel like there's this sort of contrariness to teenagers where it's like, well, if there's that many no trespassing signs, then it must be awesome. I rounded up a few of my high school friends and talked to them about Heyoon. It seems like it's still as entrenched in their minds as it has been in mine. It was, I mean, it blew my mind the first time I saw it. I'd best describe Heyoon to someone who's never seen it. Jesus, how do I describe it? Um, it's big. It's, it's maybe the size of a small house or a hut. And it looked like a hot air balloon. Like a jellyfish. A mushroom? Mushroomy, sort of. Globe-like. Like a telescope observatory. Like a spaceship. A rocket ship. I mean, when you first look at it, you kind of think it's going to take off or something. It looks very alien and foreign sitting in the middle of that big field. The place definitely has a Stonehenge feel to it. There were a number of myths about why Heyoon was there. That it was built to commemorate the owner's dead daughter. That it was built along ley lines. That it was created for a wedding ceremony. That it was designed for paganistic rituals or for stargazing. The place was such an enigma. 
There's no way you could have known it was out there if someone didn't take you to it. The first person who found it has been lost to history, but by the time I was taken there, it was an oral tradition handed down from one group of teens to the next. Part of its power was that in being secret, it created a community. It bound people together. Appealing for an angry 15-year-old. It was a secret, sneaky, teenagers only, like kids versus adults, secret time. Heyoon was was mysterious, beautiful, and peaceful, and it just kind of reassured you about all of your inner turmoil, your uh, your deeper questions, I guess. It's almost like it was designed to inspire teenagers in the local area to come out there and hang out and drink beer and smoke pot and, you know, kind of capture their imagination. I probably went out there once every couple of months for the next four or five years. We'd go out there and drink, do drugs, sometimes just talk. And of course, it was always thrilling to bring new people out there, to indoctrinate them into our secret club. Plenty of romantic relationships started out there. The first time I made out with someone who would become my girlfriend happened while we were sitting on Heyoon during a rainstorm. It was otherworldly and magical. It felt out of time. And it felt like it was ours. Going to visit Heyoon was the perfect mixture of danger and secrecy and awe to capture 15-year-old Alex's imagination for the next decade and a half. Even after I moved away in 2001, I was fixated on trying to find out why it was there. So in 2009, I wrote a letter to the white farmhouse we always snuck past on our way to Heyoon, asking them if they were the owners. Alex got a letter back. They didn't own Heyoon. Their neighbors did. Rita and Peter Hayden. That's when I realized that what we'd been calling the Heyoon Pavilion for years was actually the Hayden Pavilion. That Gaelic font made the D look kind of like a second O. And we'd only ever seen it in the middle of the night. If the names Rita and Peter Hayden sound familiar, it's probably because their nonprofit, the Mosaic Foundation, has been underwriting public radio for decades. And by the Mosaic Foundation of Rita and Peter Hayden, based in Ann Arbor, honoring the literary arts and the universe of great ideas. Be well, do good work, and keep in touch. I sent the Haydens a letter, apologizing for my youthful indiscretions, and asking them if I could interview them about Heyoon. Peter Hayden wrote back, quote, So you're one of the little shits who invaded our privacy by visiting our pavilion when you were told at many places along the way not to be there. End quote. This was in 2009, before I was a public radio producer. I was just a guy in New York who fixed computers. And a guy who used to trespass on the Hayden's property. The rest of his letter was friendly, but he wasn't too keen on talking to me. But I couldn't let it go that I'd communicated with the creator of Heyoon, and that the mystery could be solved. It drove me bonkers. So in 2012, after working in public radio for a couple years, now I had a better excuse to try to talk to Hayden. And I decided to try again. Peter Hayden can be a hard man to reach. He doesn't use email. He doesn't always answer the phone. And he was reluctant to give an interview for fear of attracting even more people to Heyoon. But after a couple phone calls and a few fax messages, he agreed to meet me for an interview about Heyoon. At Heyoon. This will be something new for you, coming in legally. Yeah, and during the day. <laughs> it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Yeah, it certainly has. How you doing? I'm Peter. Alex, nice, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Alex. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this. Yeah, I'm uh, 
I have mixed feelings about it, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Peter Hayden told me that Heyoon was designed by a friend of his, an artist and designer named Joseph Kinnebrew. Kinnebrew and his wife were visiting the Haydens one night in 1978 when a massive blizzard came through and snowed them in. We were trapped in our house down at the bottom of the hill for five days, just the four of us. But we got to know each other quite well during that period. I think Joe is nuts and I like being around him. I find him, you know, complimenting the kind of person I'm not. The Haydens and the Kinnebrews got to be close. That spring, the Kinnebrews came back for a visit. And uh, we went to a downtown restaurant. We got absolutely soddingly drunk. We had planned, he said, I'm going to build you a pavilion. And I said, okay, we'll do this. And by, by dusk, uh, we decided we'd come out here and look at this field and to position where the pavilion was going to be. I had nothing, I didn't have a flashlight, I didn't have anything. Our wives were parked right here where we were parked. And they watched these two stumbling drunks walking across the field. And Joe said, I can't see you. And I said, well, what, am I, what are we going to do? And he said, well, he said, in order for me to see you, I've got to have a light. And I said, what's that going to be? And he, he said, well, Here's a piece of the New York Times. Let's, you do a flare. So we lit the stand. I mean, we could have set the whole field alight. We didn't, but we didn't. And so that was exactly the spot where I was standing with this burning newspaper. It was funny stuff to, uh, to watch us working that night. And that's how Peter Hayden and Joe Kinnebrew, drunk and running around with a burning newspaper, decided to build Heyoon. Joe said that if Peter paid for the parts and labor, he'd do the design for free. I found it kind of oddly reassuring that the creation of Heyoon came out of the same sort of drunken antics my friends and I would get into almost two decades later at the same spot, that you could trace its origin story back to a sleepover party. But on the other hand, Peter couldn't give me any particular reason for its existence. It's just there because it is. Because it's beautiful. Because it's art. Art is, it teaches you steps by which wisdom is gained. And in that sense, art is useless. It doesn't have any practical impact. And so for me, this pavilion was always sort of that. It was something that was a place for contemplation, a place for pleasure, for enjoyment, for conviviality with people that I chose to be here. Peter's relationship with Heyoon feels like an echo of the possessiveness, the secretiveness, the ownership that me and my friends all feel for it. The only difference is that Peter actually owns it. You know, the place itself is not meant to be used, for me, anyway. It's, in other words, it's, it's perfectly good being by itself, not having any occupants, not being utilized. If I choose to utilize it, that's my business. That's my religious experience. It's funny you should put it that way, because that's exactly how my friends and I all felt about it then, and still do now even though we ourselves were trespassers. Unlike you, Alex, there were some heads that came out here and actually did some damage. And we had to repair that as they actually cut the, the covering. When we found trash at Heyoon left over from other people, my friends and I would clean it up, or at least try to minimize our impact on the place. But for Peter, that doesn't matter. It's not a common temple for everyone to utilize. We were all just a bunch of interlopers. It became polluted to me in some ways. People that I didn't know, didn't invite, had nothing, to, had no knowledge of, and who, whose values and whose a sense of aesthetics were not the same as mine. I felt that, you know, it's a personal violation. And when he did catch kids that were out there to sneak into Heyoon, he'd make them give their names and addresses and make them write letters of apology. He still has a lot of those letters. Yet for all of Peter's possessiveness of Heyoon, he doesn't actually do a lot with it. Peter hosts private wine tastings once or twice a year on Heyoon, and maybe he'll wander over to it from his house from time to time, but that's pretty much it. And it doesn't really matter. Peter's the actual owner of Heyoon, and he can do anything he wants with it. He can use it, he can not use it. 
He even talked to me about how he's thought of tearing it down. And he can. The way Heyoon gets used, or doesn't get used, is under total control of the Haydens. But when you think about design intent, what Heyoon was actually designed to do, there's one other person for whom it might be fair game to weigh in. This guy. I'm so happy, um, in spite of Peter's unhappiness about interlopers, that young people came in to sneak a peek. <laughs> this, of course, is Joseph Kinnebrew, the designer of Heyoon. The guy who got drunk and set newspapers on fire with Peter Hayden back in the day. He left Michigan decades ago and never had any idea that Hayoon had become such an underground attraction. His take is somewhat different than Peter Hayden's. I'm delighted. I'm absolutely delighted. How could I not feel something really good about what you did, even though you weren't supposed to? You were all quite naughty. But <laughs> that's quite all right. Granted, Joseph Kinnebrew, unlike Peter Hayden, doesn't have to deal with interlopers coming onto his property doing God knows what under the cloak of darkness. I'm, I'm gone. I'm out of the picture. It doesn't even belong to me anymore. Um, I'm not even sure that thing belongs to the Haydens. You see, possessing it has nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing. Here you are. You're 33 years old, for God's sake. You're still holding on to it. What a, what a wonderful thing. Even though I'm sure it pisses Peter Hayden off to say this, I can't help but feel like a part of Heyoon belongs to me. I think that other people I know have a similar feeling. There were a couple of people who refused to talk to me for this story, because to them, to share Heyoon with the world is to ruin Heyoon. We found a photographer who had taken some pictures of Heyoon, but when we asked him if we could post them to our website, he replied with an emphatic no. He did not want the secret getting out on his watch. And I have to admit, I understand where they're coming from. But on the other side of the coin, when I put out a call to friends on Facebook to see who would talk to me about Heyoon, some wrote, what's Heyoon? And that gave me the same sense of exclusivity, of belonging, that I had when I was a teenager. And now, over the course of producing this story, I've actually gained a kind of buy-in from the grand arbiter of Heyoon himself. I'm no longer just a little to Peter Hayden. Alex, look, you're a different person than you were then. Secondly, as you know, I'm a radio guy. I like voices, and uh, I like the word pictures that people can weave on the radio. You, you, you came credentialed because uh, I've, I hear your voice, I hear your name, Alex. And uh, this morning I heard your name on, uh, on the media again. You know, what are you, what's your associate producer? Yeah. You know, I'm proud of you for doing that. I'm grateful that I ever got to see Heyoon, that I live in a world where Heyoon exists. But I'm also grateful that I live in a world where there are magnificent structures that are made without me in mind, with nobody in mind. And while I may have gotten a lot out of it and attempted to protect it by only gifting it to certain people, the Haydens are just trying to do the same thing. So even though this feels a little hypocritical, I have to say it. If you ever find yourself out in the middle of nowhere in southeastern Michigan, and you happen to come across some foreboding signs along the side of the road, as a favor to the Haydens, and to me and my friends, please, now, turn back and leave in peace. Leave. Don't stay here. Leave. Hey Yoon was produced by Alex Goldman, 
Sam Greenspan, and Roman Mars for 99% Invisible. Johanna Zorn is yes, with us in the studio. I'm Gwen Maxi, and she's here to tell us about some of the incredibly fun, great things coming up for ReSound and for Third Coast in the next year, one of which I just have to big put my personal plug in is that ReSound is kind of going national. Yes, uh, we are going to have a 10-episode series of ReSound on public radio stations, hopefully from coast to coast, distributed by prx.org. Hope to travel along with that series. So if the show is going to air in, let's say, St. Louis or Pittsburgh, that we'll do a little traveling, go along, meet you face to face. Uh, Invite us to New Zealand. We will come. Just pay (laughs) our tickets. We will be there. Uh, We're going to start offering basic workshops for beginning makers and dabblers. And at the same time, we're going to have a 2014 conference for the producing community. And we're really happy to bring you another year of this podcast. And so we're hoping that we know you've been listening to the podcast. And we hope that you'll support it as we come to the end of the year and have to balance our budget and we want to end it in the black. And so that means that we're hoping you will be able to kick a little something in at the end of the year. Well, we should give people the address. So okay. it's thirdcoastfestival.org. Just go to our website where also you can find like 1,500 uh documentary stories of all shapes, styles, sounds, uh, iterations. Enjoy that. But first, please give us a gift, a little something, $10, $25. Anything that you give will be doubled thanks to John Barth of PRX. He's our generous friend and advisor, and he is going to match every gift, dollar for dollar, up to $3,000. And we really, really appreciate it. We so, so, so appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. Happy holidays. Yay. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support also comes from the Old Town School of Folk Music, where a new class session begins January 6th. The sessions include lessons in guitar, banjo, tango dancing, singing, and more. Classes are available for beginners and advanced players, adults, and kids. More information at oldtownschool.org. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.